You are listening to Pangea Cast, the digital voice of Pangea Church in Seattle, Washington. We are a church that follows in the way of Jesus to inspire others in the way of love. Visit us in person on Sundays or online at seattlepangea.com. We're stepping into a series on the miracles of Jesus and uh, what we know about this Jesus as Christians is often he's the second person of the Trinity. That's true. So if you know me, uh, you know that that's foundational. Like everything I believe about God looks like Jesus because Jesus is who uh, the early church claimed he was, all that stuff. But what I'm hoping we can do in this series is challenge the other half. And it's really weird to even say the other half of Jesus because there's supposed to be like 100%. You know, he's kind of like a 200 percenter, which is weird. Um, But but give me the benefit of the doubt that my language is going to be less than perfect because actually the formulations are always less than perfect. We're, we're aiming for something that is um, beyond us with words that we have attainable here. And with Jesus, however, when we look at his life, I've had this weird sense that we really minimize the humanity. And if you were here, uh, what would have been last week, but we had a snow day, so two weeks ago, um, I did kind of a one-off sort of message. Uh, we called it Human Like Jesus. And we, we looked at how Jesus is the model of what it looks like for us to be image bearers of God, what it looks like for us to sort of be transformed. And it brought rise to this series I've been sitting with, and, and it really just made sense to just jump into it, called The Miracles of Jesus. And, and if you've been around the church for any length of time, when you hear about the miracles of Jesus, it's highly possible that what you hear is, well, he's God and he's doing these things. But the Gospels, as I think Tom Wright really helpfully points out, really tell a different story. I thought his comment about Elijah or whatever was really helpful, right? If we say he does miracles, therefore he's God, We have a few other people that are doing miracles both before Jesus and then after Jesus and during Jesus' ministry. In fact, we have someone who does miracles um, that is sort of outside of the Jesus inner circle in one gospel story. And the disciples are like, what the heck? He's doing stuff and he's he's not in our crew. So, so we have to, we have to see that for the earliest Christians, miracles were not a sign of divinity. It was a sign that divinity was with the human. You follow? Now, now what, uh, what we are not going to walk away from is the sort of underemphasizing of the divinity. However, what we haven't done well is um, sort of this thing where we're like, ah, he's human, but only if it sounds cool. You know what I mean? Like, like, I remember in high school, we, we were exposed to this book by Philip Yancey. Great book, by the way. I still think it holds up. Um, the Jesus I Never Knew. Is that sound familiar? Is that the right book? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and it holds up. I, I mean, Philip Yancey, great writer, edgy dude. And, and, you know, him and other writers at the time were talking about, oh, Jesus probably had bad breath, and he smelt, and he was dust, you know, trying to get all human, and it was rugged, and maybe part of that was pumping up some masculinity. I don't know. But, but you know, like, there's some of this, like, earthiness to Jesus that people were being drawn to. But at the end of the day, it wasn't really like capturing 
the Jesus who we see is the Jesus we can become. See, that's, that for me is, is foundational. And miracles are probably the things that we read about in the Gospels that make Jesus feel the most unattainable. And what I want us to do is to actually look at these and say, what if Jesus is actually showing us how to be human as he does miracles? That, that, to me, is the reframe that's necessary to step into the Gospels with authenticity, with um, sort of a sense of purpose. I mean, for, for most of my life, I stepped into the Gospels. I looked at Jesus and said, I'm so glad he's going to take care of it because I'm never going to be able to take care of it, you know? It was more of a negation of who I couldn't become. And what the Gospels are doing is saying, no, 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 your destiny is actually to become like the teacher, and that sounds crazy, and I know that. And there's going to be caveats and things I'm going to have to say. For instance, I don't expect that at the end of a series like this, all of you have miraculous abilities, you know, and, and now you're actually human beings or something silly like that. What I want us to do, however, is to say that at least as we understand the stories in the New Testament, they're trying to say something real about what it would be like if we were fully real in our humanity. And there's a difference that's really important, and I'm, I'm setting up framework, and by the way, this talk is mostly framework today, and, and, and we're going to step into stories. We're actually going to talk about one miracle. I'm going to be very short with it, unfortunately, because it's a good story, but um, I, I think the framework's really important on this. And, and, and so when we're thinking about these stories, we are invited to think about how does Jesus show us what it means to be human through miracles. And it's going to take a resurrection for us to fully get there, according to the scriptures. A future sort of resuscitation, renewal, transformation of our physical bodies. But Jesus is unique in that he didn't need a resurrection to be fully human. He needed a resurrection to conquer death. You tracking? When we rise in the Christian tradition, it is we conquer death and are fully, finally human as we were meant to be from the beginning. Jesus only really needed one of those two realities because he was without sin and all of those kinds of things. You tracking? So there's a, a nuanced difference there. But anytime there's a miracle in the New Testament, I want to invite us to consider what if this miracle is simply a sign of the world as it ought to be and will be someday and the human beings that will be in that world with God forever. Is that a lot? Maybe a little. Okay, so, so what I want to do is I want to invite us into one question, one conversation piece, and uh, I, I recognize that um, there's less conversation partners this morning than maybe you would have near you a couple weeks ago, but um, if you can find maybe three others, and uh, whether or not you want to just do two groups or four groups, that's up to you. But here's a question that I think I'd love to hear um, us talk about, and it's simply this. When you hear the word miracle, what is the first thing to come to mind and why? So when you hear the word miracle, what is the first thing that comes to your mind and why do you think that is? And play with that for a minute. It doesn't have to be profound. Just be like, I mean, for me, I'll, I'll tell you mine. I automatically go back to when I was a senior in high school 
And the uh, junior high at my high school, I think it was, um, we we're a private school, you know, all, all, all these like Christian things I did. And, and I believe it was the junior high was doing a musical based on that Moses movie called, is it the Prince of Egypt? Anyone ever see that? I actually don't know if I, I saw it all the way through. Um, but this, this girl who was so little at the time, who now has babies and stuff, uh, named Kylie, got up, and I had no idea she could sing. She gets up, and she sings a song, You Can See Miracles If You Believe, right? It's this powerful ballad or whatever. So every time I hear the word miracle, it's super weird to probably freak her out if I told, that, told her this, right? And hopefully she doesn't hear this. But, but you get the idea, right? Like, I, that, miracles. Like, that's the first thing that pops into my head. I don't know what to do with that, except to say I probably have problems because I associate concepts with random music that doesn't make any sense ever. So, what comes to your mind when you think of the word miracle? Let's chat about it. So miracles are, are something that bring up stuff. And, and, and we can go further into how we feel about miracles. It, it depends on your spiritual background. Like, like there, there might be some of us who um, come from a more charismatic background. And, and some, uh, some folks I know, that was actually a positive experience, right? So, so it was a sense of, we expect God is going to do things, and we watch for it. And it was very like a life-giving sort of space. Others experience similar spaces, maybe applied differently, and they were kind of oppressive. Like, hey, if you don't like see this thing happen, then maybe you're not spiritual enough, or maybe maybe you don't have like all your stuff figured out yet. Maybe there's um, what, was, what was my uh, unconfessed sin in your life? Oh my gosh, never tell someone they have unconfessed sin in their life, um, right? Like, like these were the sorts of challenges um, that maybe come up with the word. Or miracle, uh, when I went to Bible college, I didn't grow up in this tradition, but um, this very um, unique Baptist tradition at this Bible college I ended up at because I thought a piece of paper would get me a youth pastor job back in the day, right? Like that was my, it's terrible. Uh, I can't, if I was um, 18 or 19 again, uh, I would like smack myself around a little bit, I think, because, you know, lot, you learn a lot. But when I was there, they, they literally had in their code of conduct, there will be no speaking in tongues on campus, right? And like, like they were, I, it's not even a joke. Um, they also didn't let me wear shorts for the first two years. And then they laxed up and let us wear sla- uh, like nice looking shorts past the knee. Um, <laughs> and I was like, why am I here? This is so weird. Um, but, uh, you know, like, like miracles can bring up all kinds of stuff. What I want to do right now, though, is I want us to hold miracles over here. And I want to remind us of the framework within which miracles make sense in the biblical story. Does that make sense? So, so we're not going to specifically talk about miracles for a few more minutes, but we'll get there. And uh, I want to start out in Genesis. So we're going to be in Genesis, and we're going to frame this out, but I'm going to do it fairly quickly. So kind of apologize in advance if I don't hit everything that I could here. But You probably have heard this passage before. Genesis 1, 1 through 5. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was without shape or form. It was dark over the deep sea and God's wind swept over the waters. Some translations will say God's spirit swept over the waters. God said, let there be light. And so light appeared. God saw how good the light was. God separated the light from the darkness. God named the light 
day and the darkness night. So starting here, what I want you to notice is that the way this particular creation story starts is by acknowledging that when God began to give shape to the creation, and now I know I've just said things that are loaded for some of you and for others of you, you don't even know what I'm talking about. It's fine. But when God began to give shape to the created order that was kind of a mess, there was evil there. There was darkness there. There was something that needed to be separated from light. Now, this is all sort of metaphorical language the writer seems to be doing. But you have in this space, you have this deep, dark abyss. You have this deep, dark sea. And what becomes true, as we've often talked about here, is that the dark, deep sea is the image and the place where demonic, satanic evil lives and gives chaos to the world. This becomes especially important for cultures who have to take boats, which pretty much if you live around the Mediterranean, you take boats, right? And so they understood that when they went out to sea, they might not make it all the way to their destination. When they went to sea, the chaos, the evil of the sea, and what happens out there could consume them. That is Hebrew imagination that just carries through the entire Bible. Think about the visions of the monsters coming out of the sea and some of the apocalyptic texts. Why are there demonic monsters in the sea? Well, of course, that's where they live. It makes sense to their vision of the world. You following? And so God does something here. He takes darkness... Also, you know, the sea, like all of those kinds of spaces, and separates them. You're going to see these separating patterns in the kind of poetic telling of how this world came to be. And later in the chapter, of course, this won't be new to anyone most likely, uh, in verse 27 we see, so God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and, um, and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, see, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath, the breath of life, I have given every green um, plant for food. And it was so, right? So, so in this story, the writer makes clear that human beings bear God's image and what that has to do with is a particular task. That task is simply we represent God to everything else that has been made. We represent God to everything else that has been made. That's what dominion has to do with here. That's what subduing it. It's, it's an image of I, I am the image of God and therefore I have a job to do. When God's light hits me, it reflects onto the world. 
Some people, and we talked about this a few years ago in our politics series, we talked about dominion done badly, and that's a real issue. We're not going to go into it, but some people have taken a text like this and said, well, then we should drill for oil anywhere. We don't care about the penguins, you know. I don't know how that works, but you get the idea, right? Like, the poor penguins. Um, I have a penguin I cuddle with at night because my kiddo gave it to me. Um, you, you, you know, but like, like that's sort of like when it is bad, it's human beings corrupting reality. In God's vision, human beings enhance reality, care for reality. And in fact, um, and I'm a sellout here, but it, it seems as though, at least in the telling of the story, that was so intense and so behind God's um, intention that they didn't eat things that looked as though they could move, right? They ate plants. Now, for a season of my life, that was mostly what I did, um, but I'm a sellout, like I said. So, there is something really important about the human role, and there is something really important about God taming darkness, taming the sea. Are we following? And now, if we keep going here really quick, you know, we, we, I want us to notice here that there's a story, and the story looks something like this, and I've shared this with some of you before, but but I want us to just have a visual of, of what is the Bible seem to be doing. And this is just one way to sort of image what God seems to be doing in the world, right? God creates something. It doesn't go as God hopes it will. There is a new kind of community, the community of Israel, that's supposed to be the remedy to act to the, the crisis is going to be resolved through this community. And through this community, Jesus the Messiah is born. And now the church is given birth through Jesus and the apostles. And we live in this interesting tension of we have these stories in the Bible that feel really out there sometimes. And we're looking at some of them today in the New Testament era. And then we have this vision of God wanting to restore all things, heal all things, bring heaven to earth, which we'll look at briefly and we live in this sort of tension between those two points. And it's that tension that sometimes makes us wonder if the sea has been tamed at all. That if darkness has been tamed at all. But there are these moments when together we come to a space empowered by Jesus, empowered by God's Spirit, that we notice that there is a world being born within the womb of this world. And God is up to something. And you and I can join and improvise forward towards where God has taken it. Now that's a lot. But I, I hope we can kind of start to, again, just understand miracles within this bigger framework. It is within this space where miracles become a sign of what God eventually plans to complete. Miracles are not oh, now look, God is real, or now look, Jesus is God. Miracles are a sign of how the world is supposed to be and how humans are supposed to relate to that world. And so by the end of the story, of course, and I told you we were going to fast forward through this. We read the whole Bible today. By the end of the story in Revelation 21, right, we get this poetic vision that points back to Genesis. And, and it's still one of the most beautiful passages. I, I was working in a retirement home, and I, I had this gentleman that every time I was in his room, he couldn't read, so he wanted me to read the Bible, and he would always go to this passage, and when we would read this passage, he would weep every time because it was the passage that at his wife's funeral that got read, and he would weep. 
Because this is the hope that we have as Christians, right? That the world as it is isn't the world as it's going to be. And the writer, in apocalyptic fashion, poetic fashion, says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the former heaven and the former earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Look, God's dwelling is here with humankind. He will dwell with them, and they will be his peoples. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no more mourning, crying, or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And I'm going to go to one more spot in that chapter, verse 22. I didn't see a temple in the city because its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it because God's glory is its light and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. What's really important for our purposes right now in this storyline is that the, the author has Genesis so in mind that where God was in the beginning separating light and dark, God goes a step further and says, darkness can't exist here. Do you hear that? Like, like God, had, God in the end is saying, darkness isn't allowed here at all. It will all be light. That is rich imagery. You also, as I mentioned last time we were together, the sea imagery, right? There's no longer any sea when the world is renewed and restored. When it's taken from what it is now and made new in the sense of renewed, restored, re-put together, healed, people, resurrected, all of these things. I mean, even the mention of the moon and the sun um, not being necessary echoes back to Genesis 1, because in Genesis 1, we didn't read it, but they don't even name the moon and the sun because those are associated with ancient gods in that world. And they didn't even want to say those names, and so they call them the, the greater light and the lesser light. Do you remember that, if you've read Genesis 1? Here, the author says, hey, the moon and the sun don't even exist. They're not even necessary. And so there's this powerful sense that Everything that is evil is gone. And that's where the story is headed. That means no more injustice, no more pain, no more suffering, no more poverty, no more inequality. This is the world as it ought to be. And so, here are the few things I want to step into a quick story with you from. Humankind is created to image God to the created order. This is what is often called dominion. Creation in Genesis is in conflict with other ideologies, which become understood as demonic in nature. And in Revelation 21, humanity is fully restored to their image-bearing vocation. Thus, the sea is eliminated, etc., as we've said. So, as we move into the story, which, by the way, today we're going to be looking at a story where Jesus calms the sea down. 
And, and you probably know this story. Maybe you saw it on a flannel graph if you were in church in the 70s or 80s um, as a kid. The, the story we're stepping into is really, I think, one of the most important ones for us, having this framework in mind. And so, to start us off, here's one last big idea. Miracles in the New Testament and beyond are one kind of sign that humanity is being restored for a restored universe. That's the function of miracles. It's not because God is a nice dude up there. It's because God is committed to the flourishing of all of it. It's a sign of the world that ought to be and will be and will take an act of God to complete. But if you've ever experienced something miraculous, you have experienced God's new world in this world. That, that's the foundation. And, and notice, I was, I, I was thinking about this, I wanted to be very clear. It is one kind of sign. It is not the sign, right? Because that can go all kinds of wonky directions. If you're not calm in the sea, you're not part of the, no, no, no. Uh, compassion, mercy, justice, peacemaking of all kinds, right? Um, speaking in tongues, perhaps, for those of you who are into that, Right? Um, other sorts of like moments of deep prayer where something interesting is happening that's outside of your normative, right? Like all of that, those are signs of God's new world. We have to step into miracles with that same mentality if we're going to place them in their context appropriately. That's, that's kind of why I wanted to do this. You following? Yeah, yeah? Okay, okay. So I want to read now this crazy story, but before I do, can I, can I tell you what, um, I'll give you a spoiler alert, what I love about the story and what it's teaching me about being human is the word courage. That's a hard one. Life is busy, messy, and hard. And you know what? Um, courage is necessary for different people at different times in different ways, right? So the kind of courage I need, honestly, is... Um, very conditioned by my context, by my privilege, by my experience. Like, so, so privilege is very much contextual and experiential for each kind of person, right? Where you are determines the kind of privilege. Um, yeah, well, yes. Where you are also determines the kind of um, sort of, what's the word? Courage. Thank you. Idge, idge. Um, that perhaps mustering up will be hard to do, right? And in this story, we see Jesus just like showing us that, that you can step into messy situations courageously. And that's part of what it means to be fully human. I, I've uh, learned this in a new way. So I'm, I'm a dad. Some of you are dads or moms and different stages of the game. Chloe's barely out of the body of Lauren. Um, and, sorry, <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, oh yeah, I'm going to hear about that later. Um, and so, 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 you know, as a parent, like, like, there's a different kind of courage than maybe a different kind of context would warrant, right? Uh, I was, for a long time, really nervous about introducing a second child into our lives. Some of you have three, four, whatever, you're like, eh. <laughs> but, but for me, it was like, ah, oh, but this is like awesome as it is. My kids are in here, so I'm saying it like that. This is awesome as it is. And then we said, 
But if we don't try, we don't just do this, we're never going to do this. Have you ever had that moment in your life? Where it was like, it's like, ah, uh, there's part of me that thinks that's a good idea, but the other part of me is like, uh-uh. Then you step into it, and you're like, that was such a great decision, even though it was pretty scary. And then now, coming through all of that, like, there's all kinds of challenges to, ch- you know, changing the shape of a family and all of that, and um, we have, you know, five and a half years between our kids, and so really trying to navigate that with our Lydia has been something that we've really wanted to do well. And, and so we've noticed, like, wow, if we, if we really want to figure this thing out, like, what if we made stepping into the Jesus story more intentional for us? Because this is going to take courage on the behalf of our family for a long time. Um, and so Lydia had her Bible with her this morning, so I just borrowed it. And this has been one little piece of that, which is just weird, right? Like, like how little things can just amplify these sort of like human experiences. And so I, I sifted the internet and I tried really hard to find a kid's Bible that's not the worst. Um, <laughs> it's pretty hard. Um, some Bibles are just a bunch of pasty little cherub children who are excited to go to heaven when they die. And I'm like, you just got born. Like, that's great, but you just got born. Like, you don't need to go to heaven when you die. You, you got a little while, you know? And, and so I, I, I just scoured the internet, and uh, the Spark House Bible, it's called the Spark Story, Story Bible, uh, uh, Spark a Journey Through God's Word. And, and I just love it because, well, first of all, the characters are a bit more accurately depicted. Um, and not just that, there's just this sense of like, wow, we read a few pages, there's an application for Lydia to think about, and at the end of it, it's like, whoa, as a family, we're developing courage just through these conversations that we can face whatever comes, and, and it's been just this really cool thing, and so Lydia, I want to give you this back, but, but it's the little things sometimes that courage summons new questions, which bring about new things, and those new things actually can shape our identity in a new kind of way that maybe looks more and more like the new creation God is birthing in the world, right? And that's what I think is happening in this story. And I'm going to read the story. I want to make a couple of observations. And then we're going to sort of like wrap up our time together um, as uh, we move back into some singing and communion. But, but here's the story with all of that backstory behind it. Later that day, this is, by the way, Mark chapter 4, um, 35 and following. Later that day, when evening came, Jesus said to them, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. They left the crowd and took him in the boat just as he was. Other boats followed along. Gale force winds arose and waves crashed against the boat so that the boat was swamped. Jesus was in the rear of the boat, sleeping on a pillow. They woke him up and said, teacher, don't you care that we're drowning? You would think that Jesus would be like really wet at this point, (laughs) right? Like you would think like he's laying on a pillow in the random place in the rear of the boat. You would think he'd be quite wet, Um, but they have to wake him up anyway. And Jesus gets up. He takes off his CPAP machine. No, he doesn't do that. I do that. Um, he, He gets up. And in verse 39, it says, he got up and gave orders to the wind and he said to the lake, silence, be still. The wind settled down and there was a great calm. 
Jesus asks them, why are you frightened? Don't you have faith yet? Overcome with awe, they said to each other, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Amen. What's so fascinating about this story, if we have that entire backdrop for the disciples in that boat, it wasn't just nature had done something that was scary. It was the forces of evil were coming against them and it looked like waves crashing alongside the boat and winds forcing the boat out of control. And Jesus as the perfect image bearer who has the ability to perfectly subdue and perfectly have dominion over the elements, tells the ocean, well, the, the Sea of Galilee, the lake, really, the little lake, stop it. In the new world, this doesn't happen. Do you see that? Like, like this is what the Jewish imagination has in mind. It's, it's Jesus steps in, there's fear all around, and he says, oh, but you've got to see it. Like in the world that God is creating through me, these things aren't that big a deal. In fact, they're abolished. They have no authority, they have no power. And Jesus courageously steps to the side of the boat, tells them to stop. And his humanity is in full display in that mo moment. And the fear of the boat becomes the courage of Jesus. That, for Jesus, is a moment where he images God to the world perfectly. So what do we do with that dynamic? I have a couple of thoughts, a quote, and a reflection that maybe you can take home with you. And that's how I want to wrap up this morning. The quote, I'll start with that. N.T. Wright, who we heard from in the opening video, he says this, if anything, what the miracles show is that Jesus is the genuinely human being who, because he is utterly obedient to the Father, is able to reflect the love and power and creative wisdom of the Father into the world. And that vocation is God's desire for each one of us. God doesn't reconcile us to God so that we can be ready to go to heaven when we die, although that may happen for a short season of eternity. God reconciles us to God so that we can look more and more like Jesus as he steps into these situations. And it starts here, it continues through death, and will eventually be resolved in a new kind of way at the final day of resurrection. Miracles are a sign of the human you were designed to be. So, being human like Jesus gives us, I think, a greater capacity to step into the chaos with courage. And our chaos doesn't always really look like storms on a sea. I, I, I avoid the sea when it's stormy, personally. Um, been on a, a cruise ship when it was sort of bouncing a little too much, and um, I, I could barely, it was on our way home from a honeymoon, had some Dramamine, I'm pretty sure, had half a patch on, and we, we worked it out, but, but you know, it, it's, it's chaotic out there, and modern technology makes it feel less chaotic, right? But the seas of our, our world have, have definitely still, like, 
are evident. Where the sea of um, demonic injustice is all around us. The sea of broken friendships, the sea of broken relationships, the sea of alienation that says you have to work and be driven and be so driven that you, you know, you'll see each other again sometime soon. That's something I, I face all the time in this city, right? Like, so, so the sea is anything that alienates us from the way we're supposed to relate to each other, to God, and to this world. And in that mess, Jesus invites us to step in with him in courage. And so do not fear, another idea here, is both a word of compassion and calling. It's okay if you have fear. It's okay. But Jesus is saying, you don't have to hold on to fear. You're invited into a new way of stepping into things that are hard. It's a calling. It's a vocation. And so, a way too long point, but I'm going to say it this way because I wasn't creative and couldn't figure out how else to say it. Jesus literally tamed the sea. We may need a resurrection before that's possible, but we can learn from Jesus and see the metaphorical seas tamed and storms still. As we go, I want to invite us to pause. I want to invite us actually to close our eyes and pause. Jesus, we see signs of the sea around us. We experience the turmoil of sea within us. Whatever we may be feeling in this moment, God, would you give us courage? Would you show us the peace as possible? Would you show us your love? Amen.